0: The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network.
1: It's time. You've got questions, we've got answers. Phone lines are open.
2: It's time for the Line of Fire with your host, biblical scholar and cultural commentator Dr. Michael Brown, your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity. Call 866-34-TRUTH to get on the Line of Fire. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Brown.
1: Thanks for joining us on the line of fire. Michael Brown, always delighted to be with you. I count the seconds until the show starts with great anticipation. So you've got questions. We've got answers. We are audio only again, our last day from Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, before flying home uh, right after the show, in fact. So uh, eager to get your questions, get your calls, 866-34-TRUTH, 866 866- Three, four, eight, seven, eight, eight, four. That is the number to call. So <clears throat> we've got a little complex system. Uh, I, I can't go into all the details, but the way that we are doing things is that my team texts me the calls as they're coming in, I then look at my texts as they're coming in, and then as I talk to you, our studio in a third location is getting you on the air. So we will go straight to the phones, starting with Melissa in Indiana. Welcome to the Line of Fire.
0: Hi, thank you.
1: My You're question welcome. is: um,
0: My question is in Isaiah twenty-four five. He says, the earth is also deviled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. And I have kind of a two-part question. Um, So what's that everlasting covenant that he's speaking of there, and how is it broken? Um, And then the other part of my question would be, it would be in reference to the new covenant. Um, Is there, apart from completely renouncing Jesus, would a born-again person, could they do something to break the covenant in
1: Jesus' blood? Right. So as to your first question, the text is not clear. Um, it, it's it's a very interesting passage because it's talking about judgment on the whole world. Isaiah 24 to 27. It's not just about Israel. It's some call it the apocalypse of Isaiah because it's it's this word about judgment coming on the world and destruction coming. Um So what everlasting covenant did God make with the world? Is it stuff that goes back to the flood? That's possible. But more specifically, it could be taken that even though it's an oracle about the world, it is rebuking Israel for Israel's disobedience and Israel breaking the Sinai covenant, which was an eternal covenant. If they had kept it, it would have been for all generations. So that's that's the best way to understand. It's not entirely clear from the text, but because of the covenantal emphasis in the book of Isaiah with the people of Israel, that's the most logical reading, that it's they broke God's covenant. And with that, judgment comes on the whole world as the world is in rebellion as well. If it's something broader, it's hard to really understand because we don't have specific details. As for us breaking the covenantal relationship with Yeshua, right, if we, let's, let's just say, Someone's a believer, we'll talk about uh, Joe, he's a believer, and he's driving down the road, he's having a bad day, a guy cuts him off in the car, and he just loses it. He loses his temper, he starts screaming, using profanity, and next thing decides, I'm going to teach this guy a lesson, and speeds by him, and in the process loses control of the car, flips the car, and dies. He doesn't go to hell for that, as I understand Scripture. In other words, just because he died in a state of sinfulness or he died acting out some fleshly things, does not mean he forfeits eternal life. There's some people who live with this notion that it, if I do one wrong thing and I don't confess it and get it right, then I'm, I'm damned to hell. If, if when I go to sleep at night I don't find every sin I committed that day and confess it, if I die in my sleep, I go to hell. That's a terrible way to live. It's, it's, it's bondage, it's not understanding our, our sonship and daughtership in God, it's not understanding the power of the blood of Jesus. That being said, if we cast off the Lordship of Jesus, right, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom and only those who do the will of my Father. There are many passages in the New Testament which make clear that we must persevere in the faith. So if someone walks away from Jesus, as you said, denies him, becomes an atheist, a Buddhist, walks away, or if they... Uh, refuse to have him as Lord, they may know he's real, but they refuse to have him as Lord, I'm going to sin, I'm going to walk in sin, and I'm not going to repent, then yes, they can walk away. God, will, God has promised to keep us, but he doesn't force us to stay in his house. So a shortcoming, times of doubt, struggles, ups and downs, uh, battling something over a period of months, that doesn't cause us to forfeit our salvation. We have to willingly walk away.
0: Would he forgive even, like, even if you build up hatred in your heart towards someone and then you you repent of it? Like, a, you know, like, does he forgive even that, or is that...
1: Did Jesus die for that?
0: Yeah.
1: Does the blood... I, I guess
0: because it's the unforgiveness issue. The, the unforgiveness in the heart is where I get confused, because in Scripture it talks about if, you know, if a person has hatred in their heart, there's no eternal life in them. But I didn't right. know, and then Jesus talking, saying, "You know, if you don't forgive, my Father won't forgive you. So if you, if you, in you know, a time of hurt, walked for a, where it built up over years to become hatred in your heart, um, and you had horrible things happen because of that, if you saw the error of your ways and you, you know, cried out to God and you repented and you turned from it, is he always? Is he always willing always. to restore?
1: Like, always, always. So no matter always. what
0: we've done. He's
1: always a lingering source. Always. Uh, what does it say in 1 John 1-9? If we confess our sins, verses 8 and 10 on either side, say, don't deceive yourself thinking you have no sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What's written in, in 1 John 2 that I write these things to you so that you will not sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. Uh, Look in in 2 Corinthians where Paul is dealing with someone who had sinned grievously in the body in the first two chapters and this person had truly repented and he said, look, we know Satan's devices, don't let this person be put out, welcome them back and forgive them. What about the lesson of the prodigal son? Uh, What about God's constant dealings with Israel saying, turn back, even now, turn back, turn back. So our fellowship with God will be broken. If we refuse to forgive. So when it says he won't forgive our sins, it doesn't mean in terms of salvation. It means in terms of our relationship, in terms of our intimacy with God. So the fellowship will be broken. You cannot enjoy intimate fellowship with God and willfully hold on to unforgiveness. You might be struggling, God, I want to forgive, but I, I don't know how and help me. But to to say I'm not going to forgive, no, you cannot have fellowship with God and enjoy the benefits of forgiveness of sins and fullness when that's the case? What if, over a period of years, you harden your heart and actually develop hatred for that person? Well, little by little by little, you're getting further and further from God. And yes, the the Bible does equate uh, hatred with murdering someone in the heart. So when the hatred gets that deep that you really wish they were dead, that you would kill them if you could, but, but you just You're not going to risk doing that. Um, That's severe. And someone that continues to walk in that would ultimately walk away from God. In other words, they could keep hardening their heart to the point that they walk away from God. But even then, if you humble yourself, he says, come back, turn back, turn back, Uh, and he will have mercy. He is incredibly long-suffering, and he forgives our sins far more than we even realize and in other words, there's a whole lot more mercy that we live in day and night. Hey, one more scripture for you, okay? Are you, uh, when I started referencing 1 John 1, it sounds like you're familiar with that. What's written in 1 John 1, 7? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, here's the thing. The Greek is continuous. In 1 John 1-7, our walking in the light is continuous and uh, God cleansing us from all sin is continuous. So in other words, we're constantly being cleansed as we walk in the light. Well, here's the question. Why uh, is there any sin if I'm walking in the light? Because even walking in the light is not being perfect. Walking in the light is if I fall short, I recognize it and I turn. The the whole thing is God wants us to turn back and he will have mercy over and over again. Last point, what does Jesus tell Peter when Peter says, how often should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Seven times in a day? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. So obviously not actually counting this, but 490 times you just keep forgiving if he instructs us to do that how much more will he do that uh, through the blood of jesus so receive that don't let the enemy lie to you receive his forgiveness okay
0: Amen. thank you thank you, so
1: much. you you are very welcome all right uh let us go to david in texas welcome to the line of fire oh hey dr brown how you doing brother good buddy how you doing Oh,
3: I'm doing great. I'm doing great. So my question is, I'm I'm trying to prepare for a sermon for Sunday, so I thought I'd cheat and call in. Okay, not cheating, but um, I'm, it has to do with what God has to say in homosexuality, and I'm curious. You know, I know what the, the New Testament Greek says about it, but I'm not well versed in the Hebrew, so I'm you know, I want to get your thoughts. What does that mean in the Hebrew that when you see sexual morality in the Old Testament?
1: Right. So sexual immorality. In the Old Testament is on several levels. On, on the one hand, there is a general term for immorality, which can mean harlotry or can refer to fornication, and, and that's more a sex outside of marriage for unmarried people. Then there is adultery, so that's sex outside of marriage for married people, and then there are acts that are considered to be uh, detestable or perverse, and homosexual practice is in that category. Bestiality is in that category. In other words, it's contrary to God's natural design and plan. So for a man and woman to commit adultery is grievous and sinful in God's sight, but it's not a violation of His order for men and women. For a man to be with a man or a woman to be with a woman would be uh, in that category of, of out of His created order. But Just like the New Testament porneia, the Hebrew znut can mean sexual immorality in general or fornication in particular. And the Old Testament doesn't have a word for homosexual practice, but it has a description of a man lying with a man, and that is is detestable in God's sight. And then you have relationships that are also in the category of being detestable, which would be incestual relationships. So again, breaking the family order that God has established. Hey, um, so it's general, and then within that, homosexual practice described as something detestable. Leviticus 18, from beginning to end, good thing to look at. Hey, out of time, we'll be right back.
2: Fire with your host Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown.
1: Thanks for joining us on the Line of Fire 866-34-TRUTH. Much appreciation to our teams in Winston-Salem and Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Harrisburg, North Carolina. I'm flying out of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, but different cities. Uh, for handling the calls, helping us do this from a remote location. I don't mean remote like I'm in a village in the middle of India. I mean remote as in not in the normal studio. 866-348-7884. You've got questions. We've got answers. Before I go back to the phones, if you're not getting my emails, this is a great time of the year to sign up. Because so many things happen towards the end of the year, and special announcements, and ways you can partner together, and opportunities, and resources we have, and, and on and on. So if you're not getting my emails, go to the website. Take a minute. If if you're not driving and you could do it, do it right now. Ask Dr. Brown. Askdrbrown.org. We want to send you a free mini ebook on how to pray for America. I want to get you on our welcome tour, tell you more about my own background from LSD to PhD and the, the three R's of our ministry and how how we can be here every day to infuse you with, with faith and truth and courage and all the other resources we want to pour into you. We want to help you run your race. Your, the victory that you win in the Lord, that's that's what we are backing and standing with. alright six six three four right, uh, 866-34-TRUTH, we go back to the phones. Uh, let's talk to Joel. In New York, welcome to the line of fire.
3: Hi, Dr. Brown, thank you. Hey. Um, I'm calling because um, we're in a very difficult situation, and I really need some guidance in terms of how to move forward. Yeah. Um, My sister was um, involved in a relationship with my pastor, which um, is not his wife, and also it happened to be that someone else was involved in a relationship with him for some time. And um, it kind of like blew up about two weeks ago. Mm. Um, some of us had suspicions, and when when his wife kind of like I have another sister who's part of the church, who's also in leadership. When um they were confronted, they were to confront him. He confessed about it, but it was with the intention of just like leaving everything and and kind of like running away with my older sister.
2: Mm. And
3: uh, he was convinced to by his wife to not drop everything and you know to kind of like go through a restoring process, but the only problem is that the church culture which I grow, grew up on is, is a church culture where if someone was found to be in, in some similar situation, they will not be held accountable necessarily. It we'll would just be like, you know, it already happened. And, and um, for me, um, I've had conversations with his wife, not with him directly, because he's, he's just kind of decided to get away for a few weeks and try to be with the Lord and things like that. And, and my fear is that um, the the process of going through this is um, let's not tell what well, his wife didn't want more people to know, just kind of leave it under the rug, um, and and for him to kind of like not probably even step out of um, for a season, be mm. restored, and um, the last the last news I've heard from my sister last night is that the wife, I think she said that she's probably going to talk to the leadership um, of the church, I'm not sure about that yet, but there's no the um, um, decision in terms of his process. Well, he's gonna step down for a season, and he's gonna go through um, counseling. And I personally just thought that was really wrong. And and um, I was thinking about leaving the church, but it's just it's very confusing right now. So I need help with this.
1: Yeah, sin always leaves such a terrible, terrible mess, and destroys so many lives. And it's never worth it. Whatever the romantic thrill might be, the sexual fulfillment, what it's it's never worth it. It it bites. And everyone's hurt and everyone, in the end, What? why why did I do what I did? So uh, just a couple of specific questions to be clear. So when you say involved in a relationship, you mean that they were in an actual romantic and sexual relationship?
3: Yeah. um, With my sister, um, it became romantic. There was another person that um, he was doing this before, my sister, which it was probably just sexual. But with my sister, it became romantic as well.
1: Okay. Right, because it's one thing if a pastor is he gets too friendly with someone and realizes these texts went too far, so you bring it to the other leaders. You sit down, you you deal with it, and that's not you know. But it never went beyond that. It's just wow, I I, I should have been more careful. It's a whole other thing when you're actually in a relationship, romantic, sexual, etc. So for his own good, and for the good of the church, for the good of his marriage good of everyone involved, of course he has to step down and go through a period of restoration. And even going through a period of restoration, it's not with the guarantee of being restored. There there are some churches, I was talking to Justin Peters about this once, and he was a a critic of a lot of the things in the charismatic movement, and he said, in their circles, you're disqualified for life. I said, in our circles, there can be restoration, but there has to be proper repentance and the, the time frame, it could be a year, it could be two, whatever, for someone to be restored, regaining trust and confidence. So it, of, of course he has to. Uh, otherwise, it just brings further reproach to the gospel. Uh, the fact that they're in the same church together, the doors can be open. It's happened to him more in the past, based on your description. I'm so glad that you had the wisdom not to give further details so we can talk freely here. But are are you, I, I don't want to know the specifics but uh, are you part of a denomination? Um,
3: the the it's a conciliar. So it's kind of like um, he is free from denomination, but he's he's a bishop. He just got anointed as a bishop maybe like four months ago, and and um, there's other churches that have come into the the conciliar. I don't know how to say that word in, in English. It's kind of like um. It's 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 not a denomination right now. Um All right. But are
1: are there are there leaders that have authority over him or a board to whom he's accountable even beyond the church?
3: Yeah, so so the when I spoke to his wife about the whole thing, he said that he has his bishop, which um we know him personally. Um, but um the bishop is the one that started the whole culture of just don't don't worry about it and just keep going type of thing, you know. In his church he used to just give the mic to someone push next week. Don't worry about what just happened.
1: Forget
3: about it. Mm. So that's the That's how they operate. And that's right.
1: Yeah. yeah. All right. Destroyed. So in in this situation, uh, obviously you you pray. Uh, you know your 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 sister is is she repentant for for her sin?
3: Unfortunately, in a place where she got so. Um. um she she was in. Uh, she was willing to go, and once she decided to do that, and I sent her back home because they were together for like. Last week, um, she's just hurt, and I don't. Right, so right.
1: so you've got you've got this whole thing ready to explode potentially, and it could well be that that he ends up the pastor wants to leave and leave his wife. I mean, the whole thing is as you're describing it, a, a, a deep deep mess, and, and everybody needs to get to a place of, of real repentance. So, what I would say is this: uh, you you have to. I, I would. I would go to them and appeal to them and just say, listen, there's only one right way to deal with this in God's sight. Otherwise, it's only going to get worse. Otherwise, the wound is only going to grow deeper. Otherwise, it's going to happen again, and it's going to bring reproach to the name of Jesus. It's going to destroy the lives of of people in the church. And as painful as it is, this is the step that has to be taken. If he refuses, then you can... I would write a letter to the other elders in the church, along with the pastor, yeah. Or sure. right. Yeah, I would I would I would write to them and just say look, you know the whole situation, your sister involved, you're you're urging them to to call him to step down and and get to a place of family personal restoration, repentance, family restoration. And it's God's church. He can, he can watch out for the flock and 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 care for them. If they say no, we don't do this or you become an accuser of the brethren or whatever, then you just have to Quietly leave. You don't make. You don't announce it to the whole church. You don't go on Facebook and talk about it. You don't try to take matters into your own hands. You just say, "All right, you're making a real mistake," and it's very sad because I love the church and I love the pastor, but I'm going to have to leave. and And you do that, and there, there's no you, you can't force it. You can't make it happen, but at least you can do what you know how to do and make an appeal. And again, the warning would be that if if they don't if they don't get this right, it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. And, and you know what it's like? <clears throat> it's like an athlete who gets injured in a game, but then comes back to play prematurely, and they end up destroying their whole career because the injury gets worse. It's the same kind of thing. Again, if it was something less severe, if it was something that could be covered internally without embarrassment, without bringing things up, and, and even, even if it is confessed publicly, you don't have to go into details of who and what and where, just that there were moral failings and you're stepping down and getting help. Normally, when someone humbles themselves, uh, the congregation really rallies behind them with love. We, we tend to be forgiving people when we see genuine repentance, but whoever covers his sins, Proverbs says, will not prosper. So smaller issues can be dealt with in-house, they can be dealt with privately, uh, they can be covered because they haven't crossed a line. But other things cross that line and have to be dealt with a certain way. So yeah, may the Lord give you wisdom. May there be humility and a spirit of, of repentance. Hey, thank you, sir, for the call. God bless you. All right. Uh, I'm looking at my clock. Jamar, I'm sorry that I will not be able to get to your call now. I've got to transition over to social media questions because I have to leave a little early to catch a flight but I did see posted a question about blessed are the meek. I'm not sure if this is what you're asking but, but meek people are humble in heart are not aggressively trying to make God's will happen. They live in dependence on God and are happy to let God fight their battles but they may be people of incredible courage and strength and fortitude and perseverance, and faith, but they're not trying to make things happen by force. Going back to Psalm 37, where the verse comes from, where, where, where the meek are spoken of as inheriting the earth. If you want more understanding of that, read all of Psalm 37, and then go back to Matthew 5. All right, we got some fascinating questions to tackle on the other side of the break. Stay right here.
2: the line of fire with your host Dr. Michael Brown get on the line of fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH here again is Dr. Michael Brown this is Michael Brown okay a few days ago when our phone
1: system and radio studio was being massively revamped we were unable to take calls so because of that I solicited questions online on Twitter and Facebook And then the phone lines were back in order, but I had solicited all these questions. So in order to be fair to those I said I'd be answering on the air, I want to take the rest of the broadcast now to answer these questions that have been posted on social media. So I won't be taking any more calls, but I'm just going to go to these questions I had solicited a few days back. So we we got a lot of them. I answered some on Facebook. Uh, Now I'm going to go over to Twitter and answer also, one other dynamic as I've been broadcasting from Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, and boy, what a again, what a beautiful night we had, what a beautiful week I had at the Global Awakening Seminary, what precious students and hearts open to the spirit. Uh, my flight is leaving at such a time that I can't finish doing the broadcast live and catch the flight. So if the mic sounds different, yeah, there's uh, what I've done is I'm pre-recording these before the show. So the first half hour answering the calls, we were live and I'll pre-record. We've never mixed this, I don't think, before, but uh, we'll get to as many questions as we can. OK, enough of that. Here we go. This is on Twitter. Uh, Allegiant State of Mind. What are effective formats to exercise a healthy prophetic ministry? Grew up with prayer, prophetic time at at the altar. Currently, my church has prophetic ministry once a month. Three folks minister with three congregants in a private room, not in the main sanctuary. All right. So, private prophetic ministry and having several people together, prophetic brothers and sisters, ministering to individuals. That's wonderful because here people are getting individual ministry and see if the Lord is saying something to them. And you've got three different prophetic people. So it's an amazing thing. I haven't done a lot of these over the years, but when I have, it's incredible that you, you you get the same words. Like, wow, you get the same scripture. There's a lot of confirmation that comes. So that can be a very excellent practice. You just don't want to ever rely on that to hear from God. Like, I have to wait till I go to the prophets. But prophetic ministry is also spontaneous. So during a service, depends on how many people there are in the format of the service or in a, in a house group meeting where someone gets a word and they speak it. And then the, the others there with discernment weigh uh, what the Lord is saying through that or you process it. That's something that's healthy. Also, if someone feels they have something, they can submit it to a leader. I feel the Lord is saying that Sometimes they write it out. It can be shared like that. Uh, there can be someone who's a recognized prophetic brother or sister that comes in and ministers. But again, everything else is tested. Just like someone preaches from the Bible, we want to test what they're saying based on Scripture. So The prophetic words are tested as well. But these are different ways to cultivate healthy prophetic ministry. What you want to do is say, Lord, we believe this is important. We ask for the full release of it in our body for your glory and for the good of your people. Jared, how do we ensure that theology is not overshadowing our walk with the Lord? So the first thing is to even have that consciousness, right? The first thing is to recognize that this can happen. See, it's one thing if you get so obsessed with sports that you quit praying and reading the Bible. It's like, okay, I'm wasting my time. What am I doing? It's one thing if you, you are just pulled away by other interests that are not themselves spiritual, but theology is very spiritual. So you want to first and foremost be sure that nothing gets in the way of your personal communion with God, meaning that you're not reading the Bible mainly to learn theology as much as to learn about God for your own life. Right? One thing can potentially be abstract. The other is always practical. You want to be sure that you're not just praying, Lord, I'm confused about Calvinism, or Arminianism, so all you're praying is about this. And you want to make sure that your study of theology doesn't get so consuming that it takes you away from intimacy with God. That's one thing. A second thing is to periodically look at your heart. Journal how you feel before the Lord. Your love for him, your desire for him, your passion for him, your hunger for him see what your burden is like for the lost, for those who don't know him, And, and, and see if over time those are deepening or those are lessening. And a healthy study of theology should deepen our love for God and our appreciation for the Lord, but I know personally these things can become idols in themselves, just like learning the biblical languages. You're studying the Bible not so much to grow in God, but to learn the languages better and so on, and these things can happen. It happened to me where I, where I left my first love by getting theologically and intellectually proud in the late '70s and early '80s. So I, I've carefully worked to be sure that relationship with God, intimacy with the Lord, bearing fruit comes first. Uh, Miss K, why most clergy why most clergy do not preach about fornication, which is very relevant among many of today's so-called behaviors? Well, it, it's hard to know what most do and don't do. In other words, I can't tell you what's being preached in thousands of pulpits around America. And many times when a pastor is preaching, he may be doing expository preaching, going through the Bible, and just whatever the text says, that's what he's talking about. Or he may be doing series, okay, we're strengthening families here, or we're growing an understanding of this doctrine here, or we're cultivating outreach here. And because of that, he may not be speaking as much about specific sins and things like that. That being said, of course, it's important that we preach the whole counsel of God. There's a lot of immorality, as always there is in the world. Porn has made things much more ubiquitous, much more dangerous in terms of just out there, things that would be unimaginable for past generations to access there, just click on a cell phone or tablet or computer and everything is there. Things we can't even imagine are there so it's important if a pastor is speaking to his flock that he is speaking honestly about sexual immorality that at least some content over the course of the year deals with some of the real sin issues that we're facing in the society so if in fact many don't speak sometimes pastors want to avoid controversy because there's enough pressure on them already and it's challenging enough to kind of keep the people going in a good direction and keep them healthy healthy and unified some are just afraid that they don't want to get people upset. Um, others, it's, it's as it comes up in the, in the course of their, whatever they're preaching through. But for sure, it's important that leaders should address these things because this is the world that we live in. And the Bible addresses sin left and right because this is the world that we live in. Uh, let's see, Jason, can you explain in more detail what the Respect for Marriage Act means for society when it comes to both short-term and long-term consequences? All right, it's, it's bad. The Respect for Marriage Act that's being put forward in, in Congress now with the sponsorship of 12 Republicans and, of course, the Democrats solidly behind it, it's bad. What it's saying is it enshrines legally so that the Supreme Court theoretically would not have the right to overturn this. It enshrines this as part of the very fabric of American belief that that, there must, that we recognize as a nation not just interracial marriages which no one's been arguing about for a long time right and is not a, there's no one threatening to not recognize that okay uh, in terms of any serious way but that we recognize same-sex quote marriage saying hey the, the supreme court ruled on this new Obergefell case in 2015 and therefore we we recognize this and affirm it and also we affirm people's rights to differ and you can have religious liberty so some of the senators signing on, conservative senators signing on, are saying, hey, look, um, it is the law of the land. Let's at least put in writing that, that we have the right to differ and that people can have religious exemptions and things like that. The problem is that you are now enshrining this even more deeply. See, as it stands now, the Supreme Court could say, what a, what a wrong decision. We had no right to meddle in the meaning of marriage. It's not our purview to do that. So we, we are going to reverse this decision just as they reversed the wrong decision of Roe v. Wade. So be it. Go ahead and do it. Uh, so it, it enshrines things more deeply and, to me, it digs a further dagger in, into the heart of America. I know people say, "No, you know, we mean well and we love and we respect, etc." but this is not something that God ordained, God set up, and it's, it's ultimately wrong. No matter how much the people love each other, care for each other, it, it's wrong. In the sight of God. You say, yeah, but the Respect for Marriage Act, it would also push back against polygamy. Well, polygamy continues to rise, but polygamy is not the big issue. It's the redefining of marriage in terms of male, male, female, female. That's the biggest issue. So, long term, Congress could change it. It's just much harder to do it. Uh, Short term, it's, well, let's say this, short term, it would have to be overturned by Congress. Long term, it's just another downward. Uh, step in the spiral for America, and all the more reason to be concerned. And look, I say that I know if you're listening and you're, and you're gay or lesbian, you're upset with me, and you're like a bigot, you just don't understand, you don't understand love. I'm not saying you don't love each other. I'm not saying you don't care for each other. I'm not saying you wouldn't give your blood for each other. I'm simply saying it's not it's not what God intended for marriage, and it, and it can't, shouldn't be called marriage. I, I, I know that hurts you when I say it. I don't mean it on a personal level. It's It's just reality. And and what am I saying? I didn't didn't come up with this. It's not my idea. I'm following what what God outlined in Scripture. Uh, E. Martin, what is your view on divine impassibility? In other words, does God actually experience pain and pleasure as a result of the actions of humans? Yes, I believe he does. So I do not personally believe in divine impassibility. So divine impassibility would say that if God experiences joy, sorrow, then he's changing at that moment and because he never changes that divine impassibility is the doctrine and brilliant theologians have held to that. No, I take the words of scripture very seriously and, and Jesus is the one who makes the father known, right? If you've seen me, you've seen the father and, and he grieves and he rejoices and he weeps. So we know that it wasn't metaphorical language when it came to Yeshua. We know that he actually experienced these things you said we experienced them as a man, but as a man who represented God and as God in the flesh. So it wasn't like getting physically tired as a man and God isn't tired, but it was as feeling the emotions that someone feels because we're creating God's image. So, uh, again, I, I was teaching on this Wednesday night and mentioned that on the on the show yesterday about God's pain, God's heart, and he wants to share that with his people. So yes, I believe he genuinely experiences these things. When it says in Genesis 6 that he was grieved in his heart that he made man, I believe he genuinely experiences that. I believe in Zephaniah 3 which says that he sings over us with joy, that he genuinely feels that way. And how within the uh, infinite being of God, there can be joy, sorrow, these different things simultaneously because of his relationship to all of us. That, that is just as mysterious as the fact that he can relate to all of us at the same time and give all of himself to all of us at the same time with, with his love and devotion. That's part of him being God. But I do take those scriptures as who he is. And I believe even though he knows eternity, he knows the future before it happens, that, that em- emotion, use a human word, he incarnates himself in our world and feels the pain, feels the joy, and feels disappointment, and feels... The exhilaration of, of a, a life well lived. I believe those things are genuine and it makes me draw even more closely to them. Right. right, we'll be right back. This is how we rise
2: up. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866 34 Truth. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown.
1: All right, one last segment, taking the social media questions now. Thank you so much for joining us. Can I remind you that we have answers to probably thousands of questions already on our website? If you've not been there, AskDrBrown.org, askdrbrown.org. Check things out. Uh, you will, you'll be richly, richly blessed. Uh, search for things you're interested in. Search for topics you're interested in. We have so many thousands of resources that we transfer from our old website over to our new, that it's still taking time to, to migrate everything over. We had, I think it was 9,000 resources, something like that. So we keep migrating more over. but search. You'll find articles, you'll find videos, you'll, you'll find teachings that we've done. I'm talking about free resources. And then of course our library of books, over 40 books that I've written, online courses that you can take, our Jewish outreach website, so much more so ask dr brown.org ask dr. Brown.org. and if you're struggling with something we, we can't offer personal pastoral counseling obviously we, we can't take the role of of a local pastor or leader in that regard but if you're wrestling with something in scripture or trying to process a situation or maybe things you've come up to with the culture wars and how it works out in your home by all means write to us we have a team that answers questions and then some are brought to me directly and, and, and we, we do our best to respond. So you can do all that by contacting us at askdrbrown.org. All right, I'm going to go back over to Facebook where I solicited questions a couple of days ago. Julia asks, Why blood? What is it about physical blood that covers animal sacrifice prior to Jesus and removes uh, with Jesus' blood sin? By the way, it's, it's a bit of a misnomer to say that in the Old Testament sins were covered. In the New Testament, they're removed. That's, that's based on an older etymological understanding of the, of the, the root, to, or the verb, to atone, to expiate. Uh, it does not mean to cover. But that being said, the efficacy of, of animal blood sacrifices is not the efficacy of the blood of Jesus, right? And, and one ultimately could not change the heart and the life, whereas the blood of Jesus does and the one, the animal sacrifices, could not bring the same forgiveness that the cross brings and that eternal salvation. So you are right in making that distinction. Uh, so why why the blood? And, and the question goes on. So the blood symbolizes the life. It's that simple. The, the breath leaving, you don't see that happen, right? But when the blood is poured out, the victim dies. and And blood is also a very vivid image of death and a very image, good image of being wounded and suffering. So the blood symbolizes the life. Uh, look at Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. That the life of the flesh is in the blood, therefore God gives it on the altar to make atonement for our souls. Be, because it is the, the life, the blood, which has the life in it, which atones. You say, well, why the life? Ah, life for life, right? Substitute that we're guilty and, and the innocent victim dies in our behalf. We're guilty. The Son of God takes our sin on his shoulders. So the blood represents the life, and the atonement system is based ultimately on life for life. Now, there are other aspects to atonement but in terms of our forgiveness. Redemption is based on life for life. Uh, Daniel draws attention to the two-gospel heresy, uh, a.k.a. Bollingerism after E.W. Bollinger, or the mid-Acts hyper-dispensationalism, this idea that uh, basically of the Gospels, just a small part is for today, otherwise it's the letters of Paul and things that are are for believers today, and that the rest was for the first century, for the Jewish people, before the cross. Uh, That has come up, not in quite that full form, but close to it, in the hyper-grace message. And in the hyper-grace message, everything Jesus said before the cross was for the Jewish people then, and none of it applies to us today, which is absolutely, patently absurd and dangerous. And a stealing away of those things which are most precious. Remember, Jesus says in John 15, 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you will and be done for you. This is an ongoing thing to have the words of Jesus abiding in our hearts and lives. So, yeah, Daniel, it has risen up, especially in the hyper-grace circles uh, thank you for your kind words, AJ. Really appreciate those. Uh, let's see. Lewis, hey, grad from our ministry school. Good to see you. Remember our trip to India together. I remember on the bus ride as we were going into one of these uh, villages, very poor villages, and to share the gospel. And I, I think you, you joking with me. asked if I was going to talk about, like, upgrading to the latest Microsoft product. Just, you know, I mean, in other words, it was so far their life and what they lived with and what they suffered was so foreign to us. It was it was so much more basic. And, and here, you know, we're, we're weighing the decisions. We're, we're looking out with these, these other things and they're in these real, just, you know, battle for survival. But Lewis, good to hear from you. I'm reading through Revelation. I noticed something I never noticed before. I'd always taken New Jerusalem to sort of be like New York in the sense that New York is modeled after Yorkshire. But what I previously read is New Jerusalem is actually New Jerusalem. So small N, okay, I'm not... I checked several versions, and they all do not capitalize the N in new. To me, this applies a renewed, restored Jerusalem. So it's not a new city named after Jerusalem, but it's the same Jerusalem only renewed. Uh, to add to that, it's coming out of heaven. So Jerusalem's on a plot of land already, but when it's renewed, does it was renewed. Doesn't go up to heaven, come back. Ah, uh, okay. So the new, the word new is not going to have a capital N in Greek because. There, there were manuscripts written with all capitals, manuscripts written with small letters. Uh, it's not necessarily going to show up in a manuscript, whether it was a small or large or capital or, or, or not. Now, in, in so, some writings, that would be the case, all right, But in others, it wouldn't be. But um, yeah, so the New Jerusalem, like New York, both capital N, capital J versus small N. So it is a new version of Jerusalem. The dimensions of it, the way it's laid out, it it cannot be on what the original plot of land of Jerusalem was or is today because you're talking about something immensely larger, uh, which would hold uh, billions of people, theoretically. So, uh, no, I I don't look at it as a a new city of Jerusalem that comes down from heaven on the old plot, but in, in this new heaven and new earth, Is a new Jerusalem, so the new house of God, the new place of God, the new homeland or capital for the people of God. So having the characteristics of the city of Jerusalem in that respect in its spiritual meaning, not in its physical dimensions. Uh, Marty, Genesis 128 in the King James Version tells Adam and Eve to replenish the earth. How can they replenish, refill a new virgin earth? Yeah, it is... um, it is an, an interesting translation in, in, uh, in King James, but it's not what the, the Hebrew says. Uh, the Hebrew, milu, is just fill. All it means is fill. So it, it doesn't mean replant. Now, it could be Old English, replenish just meant fill, but it's nothing re about it. It just means fill. Fill the earth. Yep, that's, that's simple. That's why all translations have it like that. Hey, Matthew, thanks as always for being a good resource for our folks here. Tyson, another grad. Great, great seeing you and Christy and the family just a few weeks ago, uh, as well as Suzanne and James and the family. Dr. Brown, I've been running into a lot of people recently that don't believe in eternal hell based on the Greek word for eternity. Their stances, they believe it is judgment for an age. When I bring up to them, if judgment is only for an age, then salvation only must be for an age as well, which is a great point to make. What is the Hebrew thought on this. It's really sad to see so many people deceiving this issue. Can you give more clarity from a scholarly standpoint? I see there are a bunch of of comments back and forth uh, interacting there, which which I'm not going to go through now. Okay, number one, both the Hebrew and Greek words used for eternity do not necessarily in themselves only mean eternity, meaning that unless you say forever and ever, or through, through all ages, or things like that, it may not necessarily mean eternal. It just may be for a long period of time. So the context will determine that, as well as what further descriptions you're given. Like in Psalm 90, when it says about God, may Alam va'ad Alam, from olam to Alam, you are God, olam is clearly eternity there. right? It's, it's not just from way back to way in the future. No, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God, to use a good King James uh, translation there. Uh, but uh, in itself, alam can also mean ancient days or, for example, for a long period of time. So uh, the, the servant that says to his master, hey, I, I want to serve you forever, right? Uh, the alam just means his entire life. It doesn't mean that forever in the world to come, he's going to serve him. So that's determined by context. Now, if you look at Matthew twenty five forty six, it says that some will go to eternal punishment, and to eternal life, that your point, Tyson, is well taken. That if eternal punishment only means punishment for a certain period of time, then eternal life only means life for a certain period of time. To me, the bigger question is this, is hell punishment eternal conscious torment, or is hell, con- hell punishment eternal destruction, meaning that someone is, uh, suffers however they suffer for their sins and then is a final penalty is obliterated forever? Matthew 10, 28, Don't fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So destroy both body and soul in hell. Or those who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That is something of eternal consequence. And that's what we must take hold of. Whether hell is eternal conscious suffering or whether hell is being cut off forever, being destroyed forever out of the presence of God and never enjoying the bounty and the glory of of the presence of God forever, and suffering a terrible fate of judgment. That to me is the debate. So the consequences of rejecting God are eternal, whether it's eternal conscious suffering or whether it's eternal destruction. To me, that's where the debate should be held. The consequences of rejecting God are irreversible, horrific, and of eternal consequence. That's the key whether it is eternal conscious pain or whether it is being cut off and destroyed forever. Those to me are the only two options. With that, friends, we are out of here. Have a blessed, blessed can Keep putting Jesus first in the heart, your mind, and your life.
0: Another program powered by The Truth Network.